Hello and welcome to Intrepid Times. This is Nathan Thomas interviewing Keith Khan Harris. Keith is a sociologist and scholar whose research and work focuses on big fish in small ponds as well as the international extreme metal scene. Our discussion today ranges from the best water skier in Luxembourg to the fascinating origins of the Polish baseball team. Enjoy. Thanks so much for agreeing to talk with me. As you know, we're a travel website and we mostly interview travel writers, which I know is not a particularly good description of what you do, but I just thought, uh, having read your Unbound pitch, and I've now gone through um, some of the samples of the book that you've put online, I thought this is an absolutely fascinating approach to travel and just how you look at the world and the attitude that comes behind this could be an interesting platform for a conversation. Hope so. Uh, I'm, it's you know this was a project that was very close to my heart, and um, I'm always happy to revisit it. And I haven't closed the door on doing something similar about than this in the future. I was just reading chapter one before we spoke about the uh, the Luxembourg, and there's so much more to it than appears to be on the surface. It's actually it's kind of uh, journalism in a way. I mean, I am ultimately have scholarly roots, and I'm not going to be. I could never be probably just a journalist. Um, so there'd always be something a bit scholarly in it, uh, anyway. What I do see about that chapter is, if I if I was, I, I should say, if I was going to um, actually do this as a as, as a proper book again, I'd want to edit that chapter just to make it a little bit less i think it was a bit the the structure of it was a bit pedestrian sort of one interview then another interview then another interview i think i could probably make it a little bit more uh more readable than that i loved the um the seriousness of it in some ways in the sense that you showed up to meet the luxembourg minister of sport who had what a whole dossier effectively uh, put together on you and a the suited civil servant standing behind him. Had you expected that level of seriousness? Um, well, why would they? I, I think, first of all, the thing to say is the idea about the project would be to take something that sounds like a joke and show that it actually has a seriousness and integrity to it. And when I was, when I was talking to the various people that I interviewed, I was very anxious to not come across like this was a joke book and that I was laughing at Luxembourg and I was laughing at things that were very close to their heart. And happily, I did manage to, to I did manage to make that happen, I think. And why shouldn't the Luxembourg Minister of Sport and, and the civil servant that he worked with, you know, should, um, treat me seriously ultimately it's a proper job it's a proper country and they have a serious job to do i think that's it's absolutely valid there was um some concern from i believe it was sylvie the one of the uh skiers who you spoke to that she was worried that this would be making fun of her but you managed to uh, demonstrate to her that this wasn't actually the case yeah I, her concerns as i remember them were twofold one was that this was a joke and the other was because I'd managed to wonder the story of some painful stuff that had happened in the past. She was worried that I think her husband actually was more worried than she was about that particular thing that I would be sort of muckraking. And ultimately, 
you know, and I can understand, I could understand those concerns. Um, but what I think I was able to do is, look, I, I tend to find any small world fascinating. It doesn't really matter what it is. If I spend enough time investigating it, that I that I sort of feed off the passion of people there. So while I was investigating Luxembourg water skiing, it was a passionate interest of mine, and it was a serious passionate interest, even though it sounded like a little bit of a joke. And I think the interviews I did, I think they were successful interviews in the sense that, that people realized that when they talked to me, um, and that I wasn't going to stitch them up. Sure. I mean, I'm from uh, New Zealand, which is somewhat bigger than Luxembourg, but we sort of have this, uh, we're still very small and have this quite deliberate attitude of knowing, like sort of being overly conscious of our own sort of global insignificance. Whereas what you've pointed out, which is quite interesting, which is that, you know, the best water skier in Luxembourg takes water skiing just as seriously as the best water skier in, in Switzerland or the United States. Yeah, exactly. And as as I showed, uh, the best water skier in Luxembourg could has been at one point the best water skier in the world with Sylvie Hulsterman, albeit quite a few years ago now. I, I also, I mean, you come from New Zealand. I'm a member of the British Jewish community there, and I've always been very heavily involved in it. And there are about less than 300,000 of us, which is about, it's smaller than the population of Luxembourg, but about the same size as the population of, of, of Iceland. And so I know what it's like to be part of a small community. I know its pleasures, and I also know its frustrations. Um, so those communities mean a lot to me, um, and that allows me to respond to them, I think, or at least allows me to try. I think I mentioned uh, just via email as a point of interest that this uh, British-Jewish community is my uh, my mother's side of the family, where she's from. Ah. I was recently over in, uh, in Ilford to visit my grandfather, who's a part of that same uh, community that you alluded to and it is quite uh, tight-knit yeah it is i mean it's you know when i meet if i can meet I, if i meet another british jew i can always almost always find someone that we know in common outside the ultra-orthodox community which i'm a bit which is quite separate i can usually find someone i know in common or know someone who knows someone Sometimes I like that, but sometimes it can feel very restrictive. So, you know, it's, it's, I, I know the best of that world, and I know the worst of that world as well. So you've always had uh, a rapport with and an interest in the, the so-called small ponds. And has it always been the, the big fish, you know, the best X and Y pond, that has been the means to, to examine this or to travel amongst them? No, not really. I mean, it's, for my PhD, it was on extreme metal. Um, so I looked at extreme metal scenes in Sweden, Israel, and Britain. And the Israeli one was a, a very small scene. But I certainly wasn't looking for the quote-unquote best. Uh, uh, but one thing I did notice is in whatever scene you're in, I, I've always there are always hierarchies. There are always people who have greater influence over, over that scene, that community, than other people do. I don't think there is a, a there is a, a community in the world that is a, that is truly egalitarian. So in that respect, I've always been very alert to the workings of hierarchy, power, status, prestige, that sort of stuff, uh, and also my own experience of the Jewish community, where where you know you know I've I've witnessed 
hierarchies of power, not not terrible ones, but uh, but I'm very aware of the hierarchies in that community um, and, and what it's like to feel on the wrong side of them sometimes. But the the actual use the, the actual use of the word best uh, more stemmed from a joke that I would tell myself, which was that that I was one of the top, if not the top, academic. Uh, scholars on on metal on extreme metal and but i said you know they're they're not that many of them so i'm like the best water skier in luxembourg sure uh i'm sure I, i'm not sure i still am the best water skier in luxembourg incidentally because the the, the the field of metal studies has grown greatly and as as should be the case I'm I'm uh, I, I'm only one of a of a whole field of scholars rather than the the best. Even if one can say that there is a best in something as amorphous as that. And it's it's fascinating to see that sort of sense of hierarchy existing in any community. I mean, I mentioned New Zealand before, and it's just occurred to me that an advertising campaign that's been going on since before I was born for our most famous uh, locally made soft drink is a uh, world famous in New Zealand, which sort of kind of says it all really i think yeah i it's there's 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 a i I think that if you if you are a top figure in any sort of small community you should have a sense of a sense of its own limitations of that community otherwise you could look ridiculous you know if if you act as as an elite when there are not many people to be an elite of, then then it looks incredibly pretentious. And I've always been very aware of that that issue. And I think fairness, I think a lot of people also are. Was this your experience when you travelled to the Channel Islands to meet the, the most powerful politicians on Alderney? Well, in, in that that was a situation that where uh, questions of power and hierarchy were much more obvious because it's a self-governing entity, and so there is a political system, albeit a tiny one. There are only a couple of thousand people there, so it's much more obvious that this is a political system in miniature. And the stakes, in some ways, whilst I said that in Luxembourg people who take water scale seriously in Luxembourg, it is their lives. But it isn't their electricity system. It isn't their homes. It isn't their, their you know, the water system. Whereas in Alderney, it is that sort of stuff. The stakes are higher. And so in some ways in Alderney, I did find a much more serious and difficult and, and, and tense situation. Um, the story that I uncovered there was this was a brief period in the States of Alderney's history when a, a, a guy who moved, he was a lawyer, a retired lawyer who moved to Alderney called Paul Arditti. And he wanted to shake up the States of Alderney, the government system, and sort of had some very adversarial relationships with a number of people. And... Um, what, I, what what isn't there in, in the, the draft that I've got put online is that unexpectedly Paul Arditti died of a heart attack with no warning a year or two after I finished that chapter. Uh, and the other thing that's not in that chapter is that I ended the chapter with a warning that one day somebody might come along and set the island against each other. 
and create so much tension. And that's kind of happened is that there's a plan now to create a, I don't, not fully aware of the details, but it's to put a, a landing station for a cable, electricity cable running between France and Britain, which has caused all sorts of controversy uh, on the island. And, and a number of people from the island who, who I never met when I was there contacted me to say what you said in your book is right, that something was happening. It wasn't really happening when I was there, but subsequently it's happened that the, the, the abuses of power have happened or are in the process of happening and causing that kind of controversy. And it's a serious issue. It's a very serious issue because it's people's whole lives, not just one part of them. Were you finding that when you originally pay, started paying attention to Alderney, it was with uh, the context of the book in mind, and you were perhaps the only one from, or one of few from your own sort of sociological community, putting attention, putting focus there. But now that this controversy has erupted, a lot of other people are joining the party. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The, what's going on in Alderney is is pretty much it hasn't had any national press attention. It's a huge concern to the people of Alderney. Uh, people in the rest of the Channel Islands probably know about it because it's been covered in the Channel Islands media, but it hasn't happened in the wider world, and perhaps it should do. Uh, I actually tried to int introduce a, a, a forensic financial journalist to say maybe you should take a look at it, uh, but he hasn't got back to me so we'll see <laughs> sure i mean i guess the majority of people still want to read in the news about things that are more connected to them or things that seem bigger and and grander well i mean one one thing that it, it, this goes into a related interest of mine which is an interest in the um the british crowd dependencies such as the chalais the other man plus britain's overseas territories places like gibraltar and the falklands islands and I feel quite passionately that, that mainland Britishers, i.e. the majority of British people, either don't think about those places at all or they have stereotypes about them that aren't helpful. So right-wing people in Britain may see Gibraltar, for example, as a kind of miniature Britain. People on the left may dismiss the Gibraltar and the Falklands as kind of some colonial throwback and maybe the Channel Islands as, as the sort of place where brothers marry sisters. And none of that's true. And I think Britain has a responsibility to those places. Uh, I think that the, the tax dodging thing hasn't helped their reputation. But these are real places. They're not pretend places. I, I wrote an article a few weeks ago in The Guardian about Gibraltar. Uh, because Gibraltar's future after Brexit has, has put the territory in doubt. And ironically, it's those sections of the British population who claim to be most proud of Britain's overseas territories who screwed Gibraltar over the most. And the left are apathetic about it. And so I, following that article, I, various people from Gibraltar got in contact. And I'm hoping to be doing some, maybe some research work or, uh, there sometime later this year. Again, these are the sort of places that I feel are precious. And whilst their reputation isn't helped by being tax havens, it's certainly true, there's more to them than that, and I think that's important. And it makes me sad that, that Alderney, no one's really fighting for Alderney. No one will ever fight for Alderney. 
And but people might fight for other kinds of small communities like uh, a tribe in the Amazon rainforest. And that's fair enough because tribes in the Amazon rainforest really are pretty much powerless, whereas people in Alderney do have, do have a degree uh, of agency. But that doesn't mean that it's not an either or thing. Small communities of various kinds deserve support, deserve attention, deserve respect. I remember seeing your Guardian piece um, after I'd come across you through your work on this book saying, hey, people on the left, pay attention to Gibraltar because it's actually a multicultural haven and a lot of things that you find really valuable and important are actually represented by the small island. Yes. I mean, look, that, that's very different to Alderney. Alderney is sure, a pretty sure. white sort of place, but Gibraltar is a, is a very unique sort of place. But even in the Channel Islands, this is their fault in, in going down the tax haven route, which, which Alderney hasn't done to the same extent. They've lost a lot of what made them unique. So, for example, all those islands had their own dialect of Norman French. In, in Guernsey and Jersey and Sark, it's just about surviving. But in Alderney, it's extinct. And that's quite sad. But on the tax haven thing, Alderney is much less, has never got into that in the same way that other islands have. And unlike uh, the other Channel Islands, it's an it's an open island, so anyone from Britain can settle there. Uh, but it, it, but actually, the ordinary experience shows why that while that's a much honor, more honourable cause uh, course course of action, it doesn't necessarily help them either because it means they don't have the kind of wealth and power that forces people in capitals in London and elsewhere in Europe to take notice of them. So a lot of these islands are in a very difficult situation. So a challenging situation for the, for the offshore islands of Britain, particularly given that the changes are happening in the mainland, and they're not really part of most people's dialogue, and I don't have a great deal of knowledge or background on them myself either, so it's really interesting to hear your perspective on them. And this is the kind of the geographical small communities, the small ponds that are defined by where this particular landmass ends and where it's this community located. I mean, I've always been obsessed with small countries and small territories, and I still am. That has not changed. Sure. Um, I was obsessed with Luxembourg when I was a kid. My dad used to go there on business, and I was always peppering him with questions. Um, and so, so that it, it, it's still a passion of mine. Um, not entirely sure why, um, but I don't think it's just about being patronising. I think that actually there's something wonderful in small countries and, and bad things too. I agree. Uh, you quoted a couple of really interesting uh, other writers who have the similar interest to you in your uh, first chapter, and one of them was Vitaly Vitaliev, who said that, um, paraphrasing your paraphrase, was that the European small states have preserved a quirkiness that bigger countries have lost. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I hate Vitaly Vitaliev because he's kind of written two of the books that I'd love to write. <laughs> what what so are those books? Book, Little is the Light, which is it's a lovely book. It's a kind of travel log with him and his teenage son around the small states of, of Europe. And he wrote another book as well, a few years after that, called Passport to Enclavia, where he travelled to to Europe's uh, enclaves. You know, an enclave is a small island of another state inside another state. And there are quite a few of them. And I think, oh, God, I wish I'd written that. 
I'm absolutely going to have to look him up because I, I too have been, I, I'm not familiar with his work, but I've too have always been curious about the states that sort of seem to be on the periphery of existence. Has this interested and you also taken you to the more sort of political controversial territories, you know, that states that put their hand up and say, I'm a country, but other countries around them uh, disagree, which can be as bonkers as Sealand or as controversial as somewhere like a south of Ossetia or Abkhazia. South of, or Transdenistria. Transdenistria is, is what usually gets most attention. As, as, as far as I can tell, those sorts of states, while they do have, while they do reflect ethnic, real ethnic divisions, they, the ones in the former Soviet Union have essentially been sponsored by a vastly greater, much larger country. So I'd have a lot more sympathy for South Ossetia, Abkhazia, and Transdenistria. They were doing it for themselves. Do you see what I mean? Because essentially, the irony about these sorts of places is there is the people behind them are doing it. They're trying to achieve their independence and autonomy, but in doing so, they're essentially becoming a satellite uh, of an imperial power. Uh, and I, and that doesn't mean that I don't think that Abkhazia, for example, doesn't have, there isn't something real there. And that Georgia may not have always looked at Ab, uh, Abkhaz people f- fairly. But I think they've gone really from into the frying pan, uh, out of the frying pan and into the fire, really. That's, that's my view on those sorts of places. Sure. So they've broken away from the motherland, but then they've had to find uh, a big brother and have just reversed the relationship. Well, they've broken away from a small motherland and got under the wing of a, of a bigger motherland. Sure. Uh, and after that, I mean, Transdenistria is a kind of start is, is essentially a dictatorship. So it's not a particularly pleasant place. It's interesting. I find myself uh, in Poland, which is still uh, you know a long way away and a, a stable EU country. But just amusingly, something you'd never see in New Zealand is that quite a few restaurants and supermarkets here seem to have wine with a Transdenistrian label on it. So there's okay. some distant experience of the country. Well, there's somewhere I'd like to visit. I'd love to visit those sorts of places. Um, I think they'd be, they'd be fascinating, although it would be a kind of ghoulish fascination, I think. Uh, for the same reason, I'd like to visit North Korea. Uh, but I don't think that necessarily... Uh, the impulse for me to visit North Korea isn't necessarily a... Uh, it's it's more like staring at a car crash, really. Sure. I, I interviewed a chap for Intrepid Times um, sometime last year called Damon Richter, who runs a website called the Bohemian Blog. And essentially his shtick is, you could crudely uh, simplify it, to the car crash sort of situations of the world. So he's been to North Korea, and I'm not sure if he's been to uh, Abkhazia, but I wouldn't be surprised. He goes to places like Chernobyl and Moldova to see the relics of the Soviet Union that are now you know, crumbling into a, a field of weeds. Yeah, I've seen that blog, actually. Um, I mean, I did something. I went to the probably the uh, ground zero of, of disaster tourism. Is uh, uh, Four years ago, I visited Detroit. And they have a whole thing there about ruin porn, you know, people going out to look at the ruins. And it was one of the most mind-blowing experiences of my life i've never seen anything like detroit anywhere else in the world even remotely uh a a depopulated city with ruins and and stuff like that but 
I don't think that by going there, gawping at these things, I was necessarily doing anything positive for Detroit. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that that kind of engagement with the place couldn't lead to something. If I was there for a while, you know, if I actually went there for, for, for a few weeks, then perhaps I could do something that would be a, a more constructive kind of engagement. Uh, I actually, there's something I'd love to do in Detroit, and um, but I think it's a bit obscure even for... Uh, even for the best water skier book is is one thing that fascinates me is have you heard of the sport of rackets um no no please t- let, let me know what that is uh, it's an older version of squash uh one of the things i'm interested in is obscure sports um it's it's in a bigger than a squash court with it. it's actually faster than squash it's really only played in Britain by public schoolboys. There's a court at Eton and at Queen's Club and stuff. And there are a few courts in America. One of them is in Detroit, and it's in the center of Detroit. So I love the idea of this um, sort of sport of this relic from the British public school system somehow being in the center of this extraordinary place that has been hollowed out by the very worst of global neoliberal capitalism. And if I was a, a better writer and a more intrepid one, I'm sure I could spin something really interesting out of that. Uh, but, but as yet, I, I think that's unlikely to happen. I didn't know about the Rackets Club in Detroit, uh, sadly, until after I got back from, from, from visiting the place. It's a wonderful image, the sort of sport of the Etonian elite in some quite uh, very different from that, as far from Eton as you can get in this sphere of the world part of the United States. It's completely opposite of what you'd expect. And I'd wonder who would be the members of this club and, and how, did that come to, how did that come to be? Well, I think prosaically, it's probably the old Detroit business elite that have mostly fled to the suburbs, um, uh, uh, to the wealthy suburbs of Detroit and never go into the inner city except for work and a few other things. That's probably the story, but I'd like to check it out for myself. Sure. I'd like to see if there are any black people who are members, because that would be really interesting as well. Yeah. The other story I had was, I, when I, I went, you know I went, did you see my TEDx talk? No, I've not seen that. You'll have to send me a link and I'll provide it underneath this interview. Well, it was in Krakow. Okay. It was at TEDx Krakow about four years ago. So if you Google my name and TEDx Krakow. So I gave a, a talk about big fish in small ponds. And I set a challenge um, for people at the end of the talk, which was to find out everything you can about the Polish baseball scene, which I knew exists, but knew nothing else. And then someone, a journalist got in touch with me saying he'd investigated it and written an article about it. <laughs> um, but the extra- and it led to an extraordinary thing, which is that not only is there a, a baseball seen in Poland, it's one of the hot spots of baseball in continental Europe because the 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 European Little League cha- or it's either the European or the World Little League Championship happens in Kutno uh, every um, every summer, and so there's a whole baseball centre of excellence in Kutno. Now that's interesting to me because some of my Polish Jewish ancestors uh, came from Kutno. <laughs> Uh, including some who perished in the Holocaust. Um, so there's I, I, again, it's like the Detroit racket story. There's a sort of bizarre jarring incongruity there that one fine day I'd like to investigate. 
And fascinating that you one day would find yourself back in Poland instructing Polish people to lead you on this on this trail. Yeah, I, it's it, the story of how it came to Kutno is quite interesting it's because there was a Cuban guy who lived in Kutno in the 1980s, apparently. So that kind of makes sense with links between the communist countries and stuff. Sure, that um, it does make sense, but it's still completely fascinating how, how it happened. I've been racking my brains to think of related examples to this in terms of unusual sports cropping up in unusual and incongruous places. And the closest is that a couple of months ago, I went curling uh, in the middle of the New Zealand summer in a small town in New Zealand's South Island called Naseby, which surely must be the world's southernmost place to play, to do curling, and a long way from Scotland. That's pretty impressive. There's also the park round the corner from me in London. My son and I went for a walk, and we stumbled upon an England versus Ireland international Australian rules football match. They play Aussie rules football in my local park. <laughs> there you go. So from north to south and from south to north. Exactly. Okay. Well, Keith, thank you so much for your time. I want to just very quickly, uh, before I let you go, touch on this one of the other sort of pillars of your work, which you've uh, mentioned a couple of times, which is this uh, extreme metal scene. I want to look at how um, this community exists, not necessarily in one place like Gibraltar or Luxembourg, but globally. And you've mentioned that the scene even happens in far less uh, liberal countries than Britain and New Zealand, but places like Saudi Arabia, where people literally risk uh, jail or worse um, out of their passion for this music scene. One of the things that I'm very passionate about is the global extreme metal, the global metal underground and how it's grown since the 1980s. Um, scenes have spread out now to places where there was basically no metal at all until fairly recently, such as China and even some black African countries where there was, where there's not even a lot of Western rock music. One of the things I think that's so interesting about just generally about metal is how it manages to reconcile the global and the local, how these scenes plug into a global network, but at the same time have something locally specific about them. So it's more common than it used to be now for bands from all over the world to sing about where they come from, but to do it within a, a global kind of space. Um, and I've been tracking that now for the best part of 20 years and writing about it. And it, it's, it's still expanding and interesting new musical fusions that I would never have dreamt of a couple of decades ago have emerged in all sorts of uh, interesting sort of places, places like Taiwanese, fusions of Taiwanese folk music and metal, really interesting stuff like that. Um, and it's a very exciting space that, that, that I'm privileged to have been involved in and to write about. This is something that's happened uh, far, far beyond the origins of metal for um, uh, American bands like Black Sabbath and, and British bands and happening, as you mentioned, in Taiwan, and I'm, I'm sure I must have seen a reference on your blog to places like Saudi Arabia, and I think one of your missions is uh, to find out the best heavy metal band in Botswana, but I think you haven't yet conquered that one. Well, no, but in, in a way, that that's a story that actually has now become quite known, so if I was going to do that, I'd, I'd have to find somewhere else. The Botswana scene is a completely unique one because it's developed its own 
fashion. If you look online, you can see these extraordinary pictures that's a mixture of cowboy fashion and leather. Um, and it's a really w weird and extraordinary scene. Uh, but other people have covered that now, so I think it's. I need to move on to, <laughs> to finding scenes in other expensive, other less than likely places. And what kind of less than likely places would you expect to find an interesting trail? Well, I think the, the, the one place that uh, I'm interested in, the other, the, the, there's been a book that's been published about metal in Africa, generally talking about these new sorts of, the sort of places where it's em uh, emerging. Um, I, I'm, I suppose now what I'm interested in is metal in the really remote places where there's not even enough people to have a proper scene. Um, and Western rock generally. So I'm interested in somewhere like St. Helena uh, in the South Atlantic with a population of about 4,000 people, very, very isolated. Um, and I know there's a country of Western scene there. Um, and that's very popular there. And I'd be really interested in how those sorts of places that genuinely are remote are dealing with uh, incorporate rock and metal and other sorts of things into their lives and how they understand them. Uh, so that's maybe the final frontier. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me, Keith. It's been really fascinating to get your perspective on the world and to see how this translates across uh, all, all your fields of interest and can be applied to any community of note in, in any country, no matter how small, or in fact, perhaps even the smaller, the better.